Good morning. It is uh, my pleasure to introduce our speaker this morning. Uh, Pastor Jesse Perchel is a Southern California native who in 2015 was called to be the senior pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Brainerd. Uh, previous to that, he served uh, 11 years as senior pastor of uh, Providence Presbyterian Church in Temecula, California. Um, he's also served churches in Slovakia, in Eastern Europe, and in Big Bear Lake, California. He and his wife, Lenny, have four children. Uh, Maya Perchel, who is a sophomore here. Solomon, Silas, and Israel. And I think if they had another, you'd have to name him Jesus, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, without Southern California waves, um, Reverend Perchel has become a CrossFit beast. It is a blessing to have him here with us, so please give him a warm Scots welcome. I don't know if you were making a wisecrack about my wife when you said we'd have to name our child Jesus. My, my wife is Hispanic. I think Mr. Lowe was uh, getting a little racial there. <laughs> I appreciate you having me this morning. It is, a, it is truly a privilege uh, to be here with you. Um, I think in order to be a CrossFit beast, you would actually have to be able to squat below parallel, which my old body can no longer do. If you uh, have a copy of the scriptures with you, we'll be in Zephaniah this morning. Zephaniah chapter 3, I'm sure one of your favorite books of the Bible. Starting in verse 14, it says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. And you shall never fear again. On that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. When was the last time you took part in genuine celebratory rejoicing? Uh, the fact that you're in college, uh, you probably have done that more recently than I have. Uh, whether it be uh, just some event in which you really lost control in, in the best sense of the word, kind of gave yourself whole-souled uh, to what was going on in delight. Um, for many of us, that's a difficult thing to do. I'm not from the South, as was already mentioned, but I'm getting the feeling if grown men here are willing to wear Tennessee orange from head to toe um, and in public, um, for many in this region, probably the last time that happened was in an SEC football game. Uh, for some of you, maybe it was at a wedding of a good friend or when finals were over last semester. But we'll see in the text this morning that that is God's call to us, to delight, um, to rejoice, and particularly to rejoice 
in the goodness of God to lose ourselves a bit in what God has done for us. And then coupled with that is the opposite reality, to therefore put away fear. Uh, A lot of studies have been done recently, and I'm sure you tire of hearing about people your age and all of that good stuff. Uh, But your generation has been blessed with many things technologically, and with that comes also a certain amount of stresses. But many studies show that the anxiety levels for young people today are far higher uh, than they were previously, and some of that is attributed to just the infinite amount of possibility that exists, that has somewhat been opened up to us because of uh, technology and transportation and education, information that we can get. And because of that, it's very hard to narrow our focus on something and decide on one thing because you know of all these other options that could have been when you choose the one thing. And they're seeing a rise in just anxiety and fear in this particular uh, generation's um, general milieu. And this text calls us to put away fear and to rejoice in God. What would we rejoice over? Um, Some of you can already predict it. You know, you're here at Covenant College. Many of you have been raised in the church, uh, and you know that uh, this is where the Jesus bit comes. You know, we rejoice in the gospel, and then we hear all of the church words, uh, and it's become so common to us that we tend to dismiss it, or it's easy for us to tune out. My hope this morning is a simple one, or at least my goal, that you might see, in a real sense, the sheer ridiculousness of how good the good news is. And in seeing it, it might move you to both rejoice and in so doing, put away fear. Uh, Really quickly, we'll go through the whole book of Zephaniah in two minutes or less, uh, kind of jest. Um, This particular book shows at its beginning a judgment that is coming to the earth. Zephaniah tells us there's this deconstruction of the creation story that is coming, that men and beasts, the birds of the heaven and the, the fish of the sea will all be wiped clean from the world because of the rebellion of man. And as the text proceeds from these kind of ominous declarations, we as readers stand back in a bit of horror when we realize that judgment that God is saying is coming over everything also will befall the people of God, his very own nation. Uh, And with that judgment comes all of these sounds of war. There's crying and wailing uh, and a loud crash. And we hear, uh, if you've seen good war movies, you've seen this, you know, the war cry coming from the one who is attacking. And that cry comes from God himself. He is the mighty warrior, and he has gathered his armies, and he is coming to judge the world. And as he one by one begins to take out the nations that surround Judah, he finally assembles his armies in circular fashion around the entire circumference of the land. And what we would think as Bible readers, as good little Christian boys and girls, is that God must be for us at this point. He's come, he's surrounded his people, and now he will use those forces to protect as a wall those who might threaten the land. But instead, he turns his attention inward to the people. And he's assembled all of his might against his own, and he tells them to beware, woe to you, for I am coming. I will be in the midst of you. Normally, when we hear things like, well, you know, God was in our midst Uh, You know, that was a God moment. God was there. 
Um, again, we've used these sorts of phrases, and they've become so commonplace that we assume when God is there, that's a good thing. Um, but in this text, it's very clear when God comes in this text, that is bad news. It's bad news for everyone involved. And it's bad news because of who they are and what they have done. Why is he so frustrated with his people? Mainly, she's rebellious. She just refuses to obey the Lord. And when she refuses to obey, he seeks to correct her, but she won't be corrected. She doesn't trust him. She won't draw near to him. She is full of corruption and pride and oppression of others. And all of this is going on by a people that are named by his name. And just as he displayed his power toward the nations hoping that his children would see what befell them and it would move them as a warning to then repent. Instead, they have hardened himself. And according to the text, she's become all the more eager to disobey and to corrupt herself. So God says, wait for me, for I'm coming. Uh, and it's kind of the, you know, wait till your father gets home sort of wait for me, I'm coming. Not, uh, hey, I'll be there soon sort of thing. It's a declaration of bad news. But our text this morning, you'll notice, is far different. Uh, has a different temperament and a different tone than this warning of judgment. I mean, how do you get from this frightful day of the Lord that Zephaniah warns about to these calls to rejoice and celebrate and to sing and to shout aloud. That's what we want to learn in brief this morning. First, I want us to see this, the call to rejoice. You'll notice there's four actions commanded. Sing, shout aloud, be glad, rejoice with all your heart, each one building upon the other. The actions that are being commanded, God is demanding of them these things, are actions that require you to lose a little bit of your social propriety. Uh, they require you to cast off restraint and uh, to just enjoy the moment to such an extent that you just let yourself go. This term, these terms are often used uh, in Scripture when something has been held back for a long time and then is finally released. So maybe you've been in captivity and you've been under oppression. The yoke of oppression has been around your neck and God looses that oppression. He frees you and uh, all of a sudden your load is lightened. And you can't but help let out shouts of joy. Or you've been fighting a war that's long in the making, and it's been back and forth, and finally you've gained the upper hand, and victory is secured. And everyone shouts for joy. Like David dancing before the ark, he could not contain himself in God's presence and the blessings that God brought. And so he went shouting and dancing in the holy city, much to his wife's chagrin. That is the sort of thing that God is commanding scripturally in this text to his people. And right after, two chapters, three chapters of really bad news. So how do we get there? It's so odd, the shift is so dramatic in the text, from the woe to you to sing and rejoice that uh, modern scholars, as modern scholars do, say, well, that can't be original. That's just a bad edit, you know, someone dropped in this rejoicing text, he fumbled his papers, and then it got placed in there. Uh, but it's psychologically impossible 
to say the one thing for the first several chapters and then to, to demand rejoicing in these others, kind of like the abusive husband uh, who after, you know, doing his worst says, you know, now get yourself dressed, we're going out for a night on the town. Uh, they say, well, God just can't do that, and you can't expect people to respond, so it can't be original. But I want to show us this morning, the text tells us how this turnaround takes place. And so we're called to rejoice. The second thing I want us to see is God with us to solve. You'll notice in verse 15, the reason is God is in their midst. Why could Israel turn back? Um, how did she get back to this good position of rejoicing? You'll look and you'll search in the text and you'll find there's nothing said of how Israel acts or what she does to get to this place, but there's plenty said about God. You'll notice it says, Yahweh, verse 15, has taken away your punishment. Verse 17, Yahweh has turned back your enemy. This punishment that has been waiting the whole book, that has been building until we get here. God says, you can rejoice because I've removed that completely. The punishment for all of your internal, personal issues, all of Israel's own sins, all the things that she owned, all the heinous acts against God, he says, all those are removed. That God has acted for them in this way. But also, you'll notice it's not just their personal, uh, individual issues, their internal issues. He says, I've also turned back your enemies. So all of those external oppressors, all of those things that have caused you trouble from the outside, uh, all the people who have done you wrong, all the, uh, the shame and reproach that has been foisted on you by the nations that hate your God and despise the things of the faith, he says, I will free you from them as well. Now what is fascinating is the text doesn't tell us how. It just says, God will be in your midst, and you can rejoice because your punishment is gone and your enemies are gone. The text moves from this really good news out of what was formerly really bad news. And the only hint that it gives us is that God is with them. Do you see that in verse 15? God is with you as king. Never again will you fear any harm. Verse 17, God is with you as a mighty savior. Do not fear, do not lose motivation in verse 16. Twice we are told, this is all we're told about how this action happens, is that God is with them. And twice we are told the result because God is with them. Do not fear. The whole book has been preparing them to fear precisely because God was going to be with them. And then you get to this text in chapter 3 and it says, now by the way, don't fear because God is in your midst. So what has happened? I mean, how is this particular sort of mystery solved? We see God with them as both king and mighty savior. Well, of course, we don't see the resolution until we open the pages of the New Testament where we see God, this warring king, arrive in Bethlehem, born in a manger. Emmanuel, God with us. This one shall be named Jesus, for he shall save. He shall be a delivering savior for his people from their sins. It is through the incarnation of God, the fact that God would come and be with us in the person of Jesus Christ, that is how we can move from this mourning to rejoicing. He destroys all of our enemies. 
He undoes the world and the flesh and the devil. He saves us from all threat, including the threat of himself toward us. And he does that by subjecting himself to the enemy and undergoing that threat by being forsaken by others, by bearing shame, all of those things that have held you back in your life, all of those things that have caused you grief, your own sins and the sins of others, he bore those. And not only all of your internal and external threats, he bore the very threat of God himself that is against you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not until the cross that the mystery, of course, is solved. And all our judgments are taken away. And all our enemies are cast out. And the result is that we should rejoice because all fear is removed. We should rejoice because all those things that held us in bondage, like sin and shame and temptation, our lusts and our failings, our anger, our poor upbringing, our, uh, the people who have failed us, all of those things God has stepped in and resolved. God is with us in this text as a friend and not an enemy. And therefore, he can say, there's no reason to fear. Now, I said at the beginning, I believe that this really does change everything. Believing the gospel rightly changes everything. But my question is, not that whether we know the gospel, but do we believe it? Do we actually believe what it says? My assumption, based on my own life and my own heart, and knowing other people for 40-some-odd years of my life, is that we don't understand it or believe it fully. And we don't by the fact that we do fear and we don't rejoice. But perhaps what God says next will at least tempt you, entice you to believe just how good the good news is. Our final point this morning is God with us, rejoicing. Did you notice it there at the end of the text? The Lord is in your midst. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet you and so forth. You know this undignified celebration that God has called us to, where he commanded us as his people, rejoice and just let yourself go see the salvation of your God, see what he's done. Oddly, this Davidic sort of undignified lack of restraint, this sort of joy-filled foolishness that God calls us to, he enters the story and he performs that over you, his people. We have this strange picture of this great warrior king who delights over his church in such a way that he gives himself to unrestrained and undignified celebration over them. I mean, I think we can say, we understand at least at some level, God is king. You know, God is big, he created everything, he owns everything. We can understand him as a sovereign, we can understand him as a judge. That resonates with us as the Imago Dei. We know judgment's coming, and so we understand that in some respect. We can understand him as warrior and shepherd but I dare say it is very difficult for us to understand or even embrace a God who rejoices over us, God as chief 
celebrant. And he's not, oddly enough, in this text celebrating himself, but he's celebrating you, his church. He delights over you. He's quieted over you in love, according to the text, where formerly there was this roaring before wrath came. He sits there with his people still and contented, satisfied with the lover he has chosen for himself. He sings over you. I mean, even as we did this morning, a a large part of our Christian experience, and rightly so, is singing and magnifying God through the use of instrument and voice, lifting high his praise. And in this text, God sits here as the one who is singing over his people and not the other way around. That is hard, at least for me, a creature in a fallen condition who constantly fails to live up to even his own ideals, much less the ideals of God. To imagine the God who redeemed me, to love me to such an extent that he would rejoice in singing over me. God does what he calls us to do with one major difference, and I want you to hear this. You'll notice when he called us to do it, he tells us why. He justifies himself. He gives us reasons why you and I are duty-bound, commanded to rejoice in him. He, He has to, if you will, vindicate his cause before you. Why should you rejoice over me? Look at all I've done. I forgive and I deliver. I've cleared out all of your enemies. I have done these things for your sake, and therefore it's only right, it's fitting that you rejoice over me. So why does he rejoice over us? And what do you think will be on the list as Zephaniah retraces it for us? What have you and I done? Who have we been to deserve this sort of response from the God of all creation? You'll notice textually, it's blank. He gives reasons why we're to rejoice in the first verses, and in these last verses, he just says, he just does it out of sheer love. He does it simply because, because in grace he has set his love upon us. Israel is at her adulterous worst in this text. She's not showing signs of improvement. There's not, you know, sparks of potential there that he's just kind of grabbing onto and says, when you finally live up to these things, then I will rejoice over you. We could understand that. But he is rejoicing over her as if she is a flawless bride while the whole time she has been running around on him with every other guy in town. Uh, Maybe an odd referent, um, but one that's surely been uh, in the media lately, is in the release uh, of of Lemonade not too long ago, all of the talk of whether this adulterous activity actually took place in a very known relationship between Beyonce and Jay-Z. And I don't know about you, but as I'm hearing it, I just think, like, I don't know if I could stay. I mean, she doesn't need him. uh, And surely, you know, uh, she could do better, I would imagine, Um, Yes, he's wealthy, but she's wealthy too. And yet, for someone in such a high position of power in our culture, in such a high position of celebrity, she remains, there's something about that that just doesn't sit well with me. 
Now imagine it if Jay-Z was no celebrity at all, and he did all of that. She was bringing home all the money, and there he was dependent, and he was still doing all of that. All the more we would be disgusted and offended, and in one sense, somewhat feeling degraded that she would remain in that situation. But that is what God has done in this situation. He has had a wife who brought nothing to the table in one regard, who surely was not the best looking in town and definitely did not have the most riches in town. He sought her and he found her, and when he did, she still continued to betray him time and time again, and that did not fatigue his love as he pursued her. And once he gets her, he goes all over his social media and puts it up as if he's won a prize. I mean, to the point where you think, this guy should be embarrassed for himself. But God is not embarrassed over you or concerning the love that he displayed in order to redeem you. Can we comprehend love like that? I think we understand performance-based love. Good grades, you know, mom and dad are proud of you. Athletic achievement, you'll get a well done. Obey as you are asked, and surely you'll receive affirmation. It's a, a this-for-that sort of love. You do this, and you'll respond, we'll respond with, with that. That makes sense to us, but a love that says, I love you simply because is the sort of love that sets people free to rejoice and to no longer fear. And hear me here as we close. This is why. You brought nothing to the table. And therefore, there's nothing you can lose that God will say, well, that was the thing I was counting on you would keep. You know, uh, you were pretty when I met you, but now, you know, you kind of let yourself go. You know, you were righteous when I met you, and now you've, you know, you've lost your way. There was nothing we brought to the table, and therefore there's nothing that we can do that could possibly separate us from the love of God. And it is that sort of unconditional love that is shown, displayed, and given in the gospel that will ultimately set us free to live, yes, with joy, but also without fear. Uh, as the prophets from North Carolina said, uh, when nothing is owed, deserved, or expected. It's only then that we can see that uh, we can decide what to be and go be it. You know, the idea that the Abbott brothers are putting forth is that when there's a love where you realize there's just nothing expected, it's just love for love's sake, it frees people to pursue whatever their passion is before God and know that all will be well, that there's nothing to fear, there's nothing that can be lost, for it was never anything in you that gained God's love to begin with. May you go forth even this semester, but beyond here, for all your days, in the knowledge of that sort of love. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We are grateful for your faithfulness. Lord, we know who we are, but we thank you uh, that it's not about us, that we have a Savior who has done all things well, and he is altogether lovely, and our life is hidden in him. May we believe that. May you give these young people, as they go forth uh, in study and also in vocation, grant them to grace, Lord, to live free before you, 
and to know, Lord, the depths of your love just a bit in order that they might grow nearer and nearer to you in the likeness of your Son. In Christ's name, amen. Please stand.